hello 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 to my backup plan tribe how is everybody here today my name is tina Gim. i am an emergency preparedness coach you have reached talking to boo with tina brought to you by your backup plan app well what do we do here guys what do we do on our show if you are new here welcome we bring you real raw conversations with our listeners about their journey from a life-changing event in their life. And your backup plan brings you that. And what is your backup plan app, Tina? Well, it puts your life all in one place in case of any unpredictable circumstance while taking that painful aftermath out of the tragedy. What does that mean exactly? Well, it means that we are all going to die at some point. We are all going to get sick or disabled. You know, we're going to get injured in a car accident or a work accident or whatever. We might lose everything in a tragedy or disaster. Look around the world in the last two years what's been happening. You know, it brought light to the condo collapse in Florida because people lost their lives, they lost their loved ones, and they lost their items, their home, just like, it's just like Ukraine right now. Um, what is that like? You know, we're not Superman, everybody. We just aren't. We think we are Superman, especially men, but we're not. And Mike Tyson can't say it any better than Everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face. And it's so true because we think we're prepared, but we're not. You know, have, has anyone ever been in a wildfire before? When you literally, when something like that starts and you might get five minute evacuation notice, sometimes if you're lucky. And it's just like today when I brought on this special, special guest we have today from beautiful Virginia in the United States, who's uh, an aspiring author writing a book on this whole situation, actually, um, who's a life coach. What I learned about losing your child to mental illness and addiction. And it's a huge, huge problem right now especially in the United States and Canada. I don't know what it's like in the other countries, but I know there's uh, um, overdose is humongous growing problem. I know that addiction is a growing issue and I know mental illness. And the problem with mental illness is I think we have all, at least I have never thought that I would ever experience knowing a 17-year-old one day and the next day hearing he jumped off a cliff. I, you know, it just brings this wow factor to your life. And that's why I was inspired to bring on Debbie Gale Zane here from Virginia to tell us, you know, what she's gone through and, um, and, and tell us how that has affected her and her life. It's not just about the person, of course, as we know with celebrities, it, it happens so much with celebrities as well. 
And we're just unaware of it. Michael Jackson, um, Robin Williams um, have all struggled with mental illness. And it's, it's, it's crazy because there's never any rhyme or reason of who you are, what age you are, what celebrity status you are, who you are, if you're homeless or middle type of age group. It, it has no color factor to it. It, it is affecting everyone, everywhere. And uh, I really thought it was important uh, to bring her on and inspire us. So if um, you are new here, welcome to our show and thank you for subscribing if you are a returning visitor. And I get my hand out because I'm going to tell you guys to subscribe and push that button down there in the corner. Make sure that you are going to find out where our next podcast and our YouTube channel shows are coming up. It's really, really important that you don't miss one. We have such cool, cool people that come on our show. I'm so blessed to have going into my third season already. Um, anyways, my name is Tina. I am an emergency preparedness coach, a best-selling author of In the Blink of an Eye. Just like that. It's how quick things happen in the blink of an eye. And I am a financial expert. I've been in the field for over 20 years. And I am an app developer of Your Backup Plan app. And I'm right here in Vancouver, BC. And I'd like to welcome all of you to our channel today and our repeat visitors as well. Because if you have found us today, you've found us for a reason. I really believe that. And please like, share, and subscribe to our channel. I'd be so very thankful. And I'd like to welcome our United States and our Canadian listeners, as well as, you know, it keeps changing every week, but Germany is still third. So I'd like to welcome our German listeners. Meine deutsche Freunde sind unserem Podcast willkommen. Wenn Sie Kommentar haben, können Sie gerne Fragen stellen. Also danke für deine Freundschaft und danke für so hören, meine deutsche Freunde. So thank you so much, my German listeners. Now, Italy has just beat Ireland in our podcast. So welcome to Italy as well. Welcome to Ireland and welcome to the UK and Australia. A welcome everyone because we welcome all of you. Nothing is different anywhere around the world. We all have these tragedies happen no matter where you are. <laughs> Isn't that the truth right now with uh, the Ukraine invasion? So welcome aboard. Uh, our show today is absolutely going to be um, killer because it's really going to pinpoint what's happening out there with addiction and mental illness. And I'd like to welcome Debbie Gale Zane coming on today to our show. Welcome, Debbie. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, no problem. And um, Debbie is from Virginia. She's a life coach and, of course, a beautiful mom. And she's writing a book. I don't know the name of it. She probably might share it with us. We'll get the tips and secrets of it. She has three children, and Alex being one of them that we're going to talk about today, of course. And I think your book is going to be amazing, Debbie. I really, really do. And uh, where did all of this, this tragedy start for you? 
Yeah, it actually started when he was, when my son, Alex, who was my oldest child, like you said, I have three, um, nine years ago when he was age 17, he oh. was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder, which is a, it's a really serious mental illness for a lot of people who maybe haven't heard of it. It's kind of a cross between bipolar and schizophrenia. So um, it was a, you know, kind of our, our lives were changed that, that time when he was 17. And, um, you know, it was, he was in the hospital for a month when he was first diagnosed. And after that, it was, it was a lot of um, going in and out of hospitals for him, finding doctors, trying different medications for him, um, trying to battle his symptoms. And, you know, within what do, the, what do within you think the problem mm -hmm. is, Debbie? What do you think it is the difficulty? Is it the di actual diagnosis or is it the, is it finding the best plan? Is, is that what is difficult about it? I, I think it's, I think finding the best plan, I think you really hit it on the head there because, and I was told this in the hospital when he was there for all that time, they took their time with the diagnosis, which is why they kept him for so long. Um, and they had a lot of meetings with me. And I remember the doctor saying that, you know, it's really hard to find the right combination of medications for him. And if you're lucky to, they end up going off of them anyway. And so it, it's kind of this battle and she really hit it on the and head. And why do they come off of it? Um, I think a couple of reasons. I think one of the reasons is um, when they start to feel better, they think, why do I need this anymore? Um, and then the other reason is they don't like the side effects. So you oh. know, my, my son was on three medications um, to control all the symptoms. And we, we were lucky enough to find a, a pretty good combination. But w over that nine years, we were always battling. He was always going off of it. Um, it was really hard. Um, so I think, I think that is more of the, the struggle is, is, is finding the right help and having them buy into it. Um, because especially when he was 17, he really didn't want to take the meds. And then when he was 18, it was a like, oh, I'm 18. I don't have to take them. Um, and it was always a, um, it was always this struggle. And so as a mom, um, to be able to support and love him and, and, and still have that connection and that good relationship with him, but to also be a parent and to also, you know, let him know what, you know, is what he, you know, what might help him, what resources are there, what doctors are there. And I remember thinking when he first left the hospital the first time, I remember thinking, okay, I'm on this mission to find the best doctors for him that are going to, so that he can have the best life possible so that he can have a more normal life. And honestly, and I, I spent a lot of time interviewing doctors and, um, I, I found some really great ones for him, but it all came down to, it wasn't what he wanted for himself. It wasn't, you know, he didn't want to spend the time going to a psychiatrist or talking to a therapist. Um, it, it wasn't until he was so much older, probably in the last few years of his life, that he found help 
on and off on his own. You know, when he was younger, it was more like, okay, I'm supposed to do this, but I'm not really buying into it. And, and that's, that's hard. It's hard to love and support them. Um, it's, um, when it's, it's almost like they, they it's almost like, um, it sounds very similar to like, um, uh, like when you have a parent that gets dementia, they kind of know that they have it because they're struggling with, with certain things, but they don't want to think that they have it. So maybe yeah. that's kind of the similar kind of thing. They don't want to think that they have this. It is. You're, it, it, you hit it again. So oh, it's like, I'm doing really, all right today. <laughs> I, I want to, yeah, I want to say the first, it's hard to pinpoint the exact number of years, but at least the first, gosh, until his early 20s, at least, he, he had a lot of denial around it. So, um, so sometimes when he would be back in the hospital, for example, he would ask for a new, he would ask to be re reevaluated. Like maybe he has something different. Maybe it's not this. And he would tell me out of the hospital, he would say, you know, mom, they said I had this, but I don't think I do. Oh. Um, so there, there was a lot of denial. Um, and I, I don't know exactly what age it kind of, where he would they talk realized. about it. Early 20s, definitely early 20s, um, where he realized and he would talk about it and he would say, Mom, I, I know I have this. I've got the schizoaffective. I know I've got to take the meds. I mean, he eventually knew he had to take the meds. That didn't make him stay on it, though. Um, he'd still, when he'd call me up in the later years and, and he'd start to talk about some of his symptoms, I'd know exactly which of the three meds he was off of. And I would oh. say, did you stop taking this one? And he would always go back on it. He wasn't as opposed to it. It was more like um, he ran out or he didn't make it back to the doctor to get a refill. Or, or he didn't think he really needed it. So yeah, the C. Yeah, right, exactly. Or. And I know he had side effects from the medicine and I, I really felt bad for him. I mean, in the early years, especially trying to adjust the meds and get them right, a lot of them made him really tired. And yeah. I know he complained of not feeling like himself. And it, it's hard to say. I think the mental illness must have also made him not feel like himself too. Oh, um, I'm sure. Yeah. It must be a real struggle, like I said, because I know that dementia patients actually know, like they really, really know, yeah. but it doesn't appear like they know. Right. On it's the like, outside. Cause they probably just feel different in their body. Like I know he felt different um, because I mean, once I started, even before he passed away, something made me just almost like mourn the loss of who he was before his mental illness. Um, and he was really a normal child and teenager until 17. And, you know, he used to play sports. He, he loved soccer. He was so passionate about it. I remember taking him to, you know, tryouts for travel soccer. And, you know, each year he wanted to be on a different team. And we, so we'd be doing all these tryouts all the time. And then he got into track and cross country in high school. And I went to all his meets and it was exciting. And he, he, he was such a different person. And so I actually was like going through a period where all of his childhood memories were just flooding back. And I was 
I was, I didn't know he was going to die. This was only a few months before he died. I was grieving the loss of who he was before the mental illness um, and before the addiction. So that's the other thing is, um, oh, you were going to ask me a question. Was When did the addiction start then? Debbie, like, did did it go I, hand in hand, or it, like it for did. to know? Yeah, it 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 did. So, what I found out when he was first hospitalized is at that point he had admitted to using marijuana. So there wasn't really an addiction, but there was a you know a, a going in that direction. So there was marijuana at that point, and. They, I remember them saying they had a dual diagnosis program, which would deal with the drug use and deal with the mental illness. Um, and I guess he admitted to using marijuana, I want to say maybe like within a year prior to going into the hospital and getting diagnosed. Um, and then I think over the next year, um, it, it, it gradually increased to other drugs. And so marijuana was only the beginning and, you know, it, it became over the years. Was it, it use of his own uh, or was it used socially, like with, with his friends? Like, was it a thing that you, so it is was that how both. they, oh, okay. it was, it was both. Um, I think he was self-medicating. So, cause I know that there can be like the, the peer pressure type of a thing for let go, let's go out and use that. And I honestly think just from knowing him so well and how close we were and how open he was with me. I think that in his case, a lot of it was the self-medication. Um, so there wasn't always another person involved. Um, right. And I know in his later years, in his twenties, a lot of the drug use, I mean, he, he would usually rent, rent a room and he spent some time in, in, like living in Oxford houses, which are like halfway houses, but he also rented rooms, just like a room in a basement and stuff. And so a lot of times he was doing the drugs by himself. There were some times he got to know other, we called them his sister, brother, and I called them drug friends. And so there were times when he did this with other people, but um, I think that there were definitely a lot of times it was by himself and, and, and even early on in his teens, I mean, it was, I think his, it was his way of coping and he did learn other coping skills in the hospital each time he would go to um, outpatient programs when he would get discharged from the hospital he would be in um, different programs he also went to there was a year where he was in rehab three different times a year and um, when he would come out you know they they would recommend he go into a program and he did learn coping skills one of his was walking I mean, he would literally oh. some days he'd walk for miles, hours. He'd walk so much with his little headphones listening to music. And I mean, I know he tried, um, but I think life was really hard. He um, he also had type one diabetes, which came like almost oh. a month, a month or two after the hospitalization where he was diagnosed. And then he also had a seizure disorder. So he had epilepsy. Oh. Oh, jeez! Um, and that was worsened by the drugs. So that was something where he was basically having seizures every week, um, sometimes more than one a week. So um, he so he didn't drive. So he walked everywhere. So he literally walked. He walked so much. Um, I mean, like I said earlier in his life, he ran track and cross country. So he um, he did love walking. But that was probably his biggest coping skill. 
But it wasn't enough. I, I think it just wasn't enough for him to deal with all of the things he had going on with the seizures, the diabetes, the, um, the drugs, the mental illness. I mean, he just, for such a young person, he Was had it alcohol too. He did. And I, I would say the alcohol more came more in his later years. Um, it's interesting because I feel like earlier in his teens in the early twenties, it was more the drugs. And then as time went on, the alcohol got added in. Um, but there were times where I can remember, I mean, there was a time where when he still lived with me, I remember coming out of the house, I was living in a townhouse, I was on an end unit and I got in my car and I pulled out of my spot and I went to go around the side of the house and he was lying there face down in like on the side of the hill. And so of course I got out and you know, he was unconscious and bleeding. And um, so it turned out, you know, he had been drinking, there was alcohol in the backpack and everything. And, um, and so, so there was alcohol from time to time, but I would have to say that probably the biggest problem was, um, was the drugs, was, was the drug that was, because it had a, it's almost like a counteract to your medication, right? It, it definitely interfered with the medications. Um, I think it not only interfered with their effectiveness, I think it interfered with him remembering to take the meds or desiring to take the meds. Um, right. And so it was definitely a big problem. Um, I mean, the third time that he was in rehab was the year that he was 19 years old. And uh, I think he was turning 20. Um, and um, the, the, the third rehab recommended, they said, you know, most of the people that go back into the, that are his age, that go back into the same home environment with the parent there, um, fall back and relapse. And they said, have you ever thought about him going to an Oxford house, which in this country, Oxford house was started basically um, by by a senator in the 80s um, as a and, and they named it a an, an Oxford house and, and it was modeled after a halfway house. And oh. so it's basically a group home. Um, they'll have men's ones and they'll have women's ones. And it's a sobriety home. So everybody living there has to stay off drugs and alcohol um, and they have to get a job and they have to go to meetings. So but they they'll support to, you, obviously. I guess that's the big thing. They're, they're very supportive. Um, it, it's a like environment. So it's everybody there for the common goal. And so that was suggested to me, to us. And I actually remembered his prior rehab counselor recommending it. And I called that person to talk it over because we knew him better. And so ultimately, I decided that I think this is what we need to do because it's it's not working when he comes back home. And that was one of the hardest things in my journey when he was living that I had to do was to um, tell him he can't come home because he didn't want to go to the Oxford house. Oh, he gosh. wanted to come home. And that was so hard to, to do it that. Kind of, it kind of reminds me of Amy Winehouse. I mean, she wrote a song about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's really... It was really sad and it really, um, it was, you know, cause I'm so, I was so close with my son all the time and to tell your son he can't come home, but knowing that it was for his benefit because I didn't want him relapsing and overdosing. And I mean, 
I, you know, it was, it, it was so hard. I remember after I dropped him off, you know, I picked him up from the rehab. We went home to pack his stuff. And when I, you know, helped him unpack at the Oxford house and I left, I cried the whole way home. I mean, it was so hard. Um, I think it's similar to having to put a parent or a family or friend into a home. Yeah. For some people it's, it's feels like you're, you're not helping. You're, you're giving up kind of feeling. I think that's exactly, it's really hard, especially if they don't want to go. I think, you know, if he had said, Oh, this is a great idea, mom, then it wouldn't have felt so hard. Yeah. It was, yeah. He, it was telling him he couldn't come back home was the really was so hard. Um, I mean, and that was, so that was pre pretty much the beginning of him living away from home. And he was almost 20 at that time. Um, and, you know, unfortunately that wasn't the be all and end all of oh. the drug use. Um, but it was interesting because I remember shortly after he got there and made a few friends in the home, one of the friends that was his same age moved back home and within a couple days after that person moved back home, they overdosed and died. And his mom called the Oxford house to let the people know. And so my son told me, and that reinforced that I was making the right decision, you know? Um, because they're was, not always safe. It was at not home, easy. Right. They're not safe at home either. I think the thing, the thing is, is that they go, what the counselor said is that they come back into this familiar atmosphere where mom is taking care of or mom or dad or whoever's home is taking care of things and they don't have to be responsible and they don't have to be independent. They don't have to learn to take care of themselves. And so they tend to fall back and relapse. And so that's what I was told. So, because you can't, so if you're a parent, this is the thing is like, you yeah. can't, you can't make them do something, you know, like I, like I shared about the battle with the, um, the medications is that like, you know, you cannot make them do something. Um, you can, you know, advise them. You can, you know, be a role model. You can um, encourage, support you them. can love them, you can support them. Yeah. But it's like, you can't make them change. And so I couldn't make him stop using drugs, not by doing that either. Um, it's just, and he did later come back home for about six months um before he moved out again and that six months was really really difficult he he his drug use escalated and it things really became unmanageable and um it was it, it there was some really big incidents there was a time i think twice we almost lost him from drug overdoses um one time in particular you know they had him in the ambulance right outside the home. They didn't even take him to the hospital right away because they weren't even, they were trying to revive him. And um, then they finally were able to, and they brought him to the hospital. But in, you know, there were just a few different times where um, we almost lost him and he was still in his teen. I guess he was about 20 then, maybe tw 21. Um, and so, after six months, then we helped him find another place. And yeah. he pretty much had been, you know, living outside of the home since then. 
I think it's so hard because you see this up and down, like you see them get better. And then you think, Oh, I see the, the light, so to speak. And, and then, and then you see it fall again and constant. And I don't know anybody personally, but I've had um, instances where I've known somebody dealing with this. Um, and I find it interesting how it just this up and down and, you know, look at even the celebrities. How many times do they go in and out of rehab? I mean, Amy yeah. Winehouse is like, no, 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 don't let me go. I mean, I I don't know what the answer is. Like, how how do you break that cycle? I'm sure every parent would love to know that. Yeah. So that was what happened to me in the beginning, where I'd get my hopes up. Every time he'd go into a treatment facility, either the hospital for his mental health and get a restart with his meds or go into the, a rehab program or, you know, I, I would get my hopes up. I would be like, oh, my gosh, this is going to work. Kind of like my original quest for finding the perfect um, doctor for him yeah. is that there wasn't that. And so I had to be able to I had to be able to live my life and be happy and and not have it depend on these hopes going up and down and so <sighs> i did i did originally start a lot with um i was in some support groups i was in Al-Anon support group and i actually got really involved in service with that i um i was a group rep i sponsored other people um i participated um at conferences and um, different events. And so I kind of got into the serving others. And, and I also started my life coaching business um, about four years ago. And so for me, what happened is the reason my hopes would go kind of on and up and down is I, I realized I was looking for that certainty. And, and we don't have there isn't certainty in life. Um, there really there just isn't certainty about anything other than ourselves. You know, we can never be certain about another person or right. an event. It's it's outside of our control. And so um, as a, as a coach, I follow a lot of Tony Robbins and he always says is if your top need is certainty, you're never going to be happy. And so what I ended up doing kind of through this service and serving others and helping others is, um, is substituting contribution for cer certainty. So, it's like contributing to other people in a meaningful way. And that could be to my, my, my other two children contributing to their lives too. Cause all my children are 20 months apart. So I had two others I was, you know, doing things with and contributing to um, others through the service in Al-Anon contributing to other people that I worked with through my coaching business. So I got really into this um, serving others, helping others and, that helped myself um, yeah. tremendously. Um, A lot of healing I, I in that for you. Yeah, yeah. And I couldn't attach to the certainty because if I got attached to needing certainty, that's when fears crept in. So that's yeah. when, and, and it's like, it's like if I'm focusing on the fear, then I'm not focusing on the love. And so if I'm fearing everything that's going to happen with my son, then I'm not focusing on how I can love him and how we can have a loving relationship with him. And so rather than expending energy on something I have no control over, um, I chose to focus on things that I, things that I could do. Yeah, because you're, you're 
you'd feel like you're on a roller coaster. And, exactly. And the problem I find with us people in general on the world, we want results and we want to see results. Yeah. And we want, we have to see it physically, see it to recognize it and feel yeah. it. But when we don't, we have fear and yeah. it's funny how our brain thinks like that, but I, I just know that it just seems like this repetitiveness of like, even if he had have gotten better and gone 10 more years of thinking, you know, I, I think it still can just relapse at some point. You just never know. You really just never know. And that's the, that's the one thing I learned when I was in the Al-Anon program, I did learn because they would encourage us to go to open meetings for like AA or NA. And when I would hear them speak, even people who had like, you know, 20 years sobriety, they would say each day is a new day and that each day they had to work hard at their sobriety. And I also heard people speak that had 20 years and then they were on their first year because they relapsed even after 20 years. And so there is no guarantee. And so the thing is, is that this is becoming such a big problem. Yeah. Um, and oh, whether- you're gonna tell us your stats. Oh yes, oh my goodness. So yes, the stats. So I had to do some research actually for my book about this. And, um, and, and, and I was just, you know, so, you know, just surprised at how many people are just suffering. I looked at teens and young adults um, suffering. For, first, we t I looked at mental illness, and then I looked at the um, drugs and alcohol. And so basically, for, um, for mental illness, one in six adolescents aged 12 to 17 um, and had a um, major mental health issue and 3 million had serious thoughts of suicide. And then ages 18 to 25, it was one in three young wow. in that age had mental illness. Yeah. And 3.8 million had thoughts of serious suicide. And then with the drugs and alcohol, um, it was, it started as early as it looked like eighth grade. Whereas eighth grade, 17.2% were using hard drugs. Like wow. it said, illicit drugs, not, not even including marijuana. It was 17% of eighth graders, 28.5% of 10th graders, 46.5% of 12th graders. Um, so almost 50%. Yeah, yeah. So it's, um, it's really... And that, so that's for alcohol too. So that's for drugs and alcohol. And this is other than marijuana. I don't know why they did marijuana separately, but, um, and then they said overall high school students, 15% of high school students reported having used select illicit and injection drugs such as cocaine, inhalants, heroin, methamphetamines, hallucinogens, or ecstasy. So it's really, it's, it's staggering statistics. Um, there's more, but I won't keep going on. Uh, but That's it was eye-opening for, eye for me. Um, and it's just yeah. really, um, yeah. So I, I did this research for the, for the book I'm writing. So um, it's, it's just, I was shocked. 
Well, you know, there's, look at all the singers and the celebrities, exact same scenarios. Yeah. And I, I mean, Robin Williams, who you think was so happy and, you know, like, you can't tell from the outside. I just saw a post on TikTok yesterday, and it was a woman dancing and singing. And the person had written, this was a lady with depression two weeks before she committed suicide. Um, and you think she's just fine. So it's a really yeah. hidden, hidden disease, isn't it? Really? I feel like it can really be hidden. Um, I think because my son and I were so close, I really knew how he was doing. So even all the years I haven't been living with him, you know, when I would see him, I would know. And when he would call on the phone, I would know. And yeah, I mean, the last number of years, it was rare that we ever saw him. We being his brother, sister and I, because we were all very close. He was, he had such a close relationship with his siblings as well. And we rarely ever saw him in the last few years, completely sober. Um, he had been off drugs for like the last six before he passed away, but he was all, heavily all drugs? using alcohol. Oh, okay. All drugs, all drugs so except for alcohol, N not alcohol. He was heavily using alcohol. And when I say heavily, I, I mean like huge, huge amounts, huge amounts oh. were found in his room Oh, um, really? after he died. Yeah. So it was really a lot um, of alcohol that he was, that he was using. And the only time we saw him sober was we all got together we didn't know he was going to die, but we all saw him about four days before four or five days before he passed away. And, um, they all came out to visit me and, um, he was, it was the first time we saw him sober Oh, wow. and he seemed like he was happier too. So we were surprised Now we knew he was still drinking. He just wasn't drinking when he, when he was with us. Um, so it was nice that we got to see him in that state and that we all had gotten together um in that state um we all ended up getting covid <laughs> but, <laughs> but that was okay it was worth it was worth being able to have spent that time together shortly before he passed away absolutely um what do you think people can do like i mean as a parent you'd want to be with them 24 7 to to comfort them and support them and somehow make it better or be there like a babysitter, making sure they don't drink or don't do drugs. And I know that's impossible. That it, it's even it's impossible under your own roof. Right. So what, what would you like, how do you support something like that? I mean, that that's, it's really hard. I mean, when they're still young and, you know, when he was still, you know, 17, 18, 19, even 20, it was different than when he was more into his twenties. Um, I think I did more trying to guide him, trying to not control him because I didn't have no, control well, over him. Won't work. Yeah. Um, but more, I think more trying to share the benefits share my observations of 
what was happening with, with him, like why this wasn't working, why this was becoming unmanageable, how his drugs were becoming a problem, like, you know, pointing these things out, you know, like I told you, we almost lost him a few times, like, you know, then when he was doing a little better, talking about that with him, like talking about how scary that is, how scary it was for his family, how dangerous that that is, um, you know, like, or if he lost a job or got kicked out of a house he was living in, like, you know, like pointing. And I, I still did this even into his, you know, up until he passed away. But I think I did these things more so, these conversations with him more often um, in his younger years, just really um, opening his eyes as to what's actually happening. Because I think sometimes, um, when he's caught up in it and caught up in using the drugs, um, then he doesn't always see the bigger picture. And so right. point, pointing that out, um, you know, reminding him of the medications, you know, and, and I still remember like, even when he was like 26 before he passed away, when he would call me and I could tell, you know, based upon a symptom he'd share and I knew exactly what medicine he'd off, he was off of. And I would say, okay, what do you need to do to go get your medicine? You know, and he would say, well, I need to schedule that appointment because I missed it for whatever reason. And I would say, okay, I want you to promise me you're going to go do that. So it still, it still is. Maybe some people might see it as some control, but I'm not saying you have to do this now. I'm not lecturing him. I'm not forcing him. It's right. still his decision. Um, and I was this kind of safe, non-judgmental person for him. And I tried not to lecture him because the thing is, is those things push your child away when they feel judged every time they come to you or they feel like every time they want to talk to you, you're not listening to them. You're actually just lecturing them and attacking them with a huge lecture. Then it's going to make them come to you less and less. And so, um, I knew that at least it was really important to keep the lines of communication open um, because, and he did come to me so many times when he was younger, when he was suicidal or when there was a big problem or, you know, something happening with the drugs that was like got big. Um, and so I think that keeping the lines of communication open is part of keeping him safe because he knows yeah. he has somebody he can come to in an emergency. Um, who's not going to judge him. So it's kind of that fine line between guiding and, and, and like showing him awareness and, and, but not controlling and lecturing and, and judging. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, cause it I know that's so that common in that age group for some reason too, 80 to say 24, 18 to 24. I think that it is. He, I mean, he had, you know, a number of people that we called his drug friends. And I know, you know, in the later years when he put himself into treatments himself, he would tell me that he was told to like delete all those people from his phone, you know, delete the drug friends so that he didn't have those contacts. Um, and even sometimes switch jobs so that they didn't know where to find him. Um, so, yeah, I think it was, I think even though he did it a lot himself to self-medicate, I think that there were these friends that he also did it with. Right. 
And so it's not always the answer for a parent to think that they could just take away the friends, which you would think that's not really the answer either. Wait, could you repeat that? I'm sorry. So it's not like you could take away the friends and say it's it they're they're going to be okay now. It's like it's within them. It's, it's not the friends. Yeah, it's with right. Is what it's I was within thinking. them. I mean, the the friends are not gonna. I mean, if they if they so addiction is is an illness as well, and so this is sometimes what people don't realize is that like addiction is an illness, and so it doesn't matter if you take the friends away and you take everything away. If they want to use, then they're gonna go back to using. They have to want. They have to want. They have to want sobriety bad enough um to to stop and that that's why other people can't really make them do it it won't last the, it could maybe last for temporarily but it's not going to last long term and the fight of that of, over your entire life just fighting that every single day it's just crazy really it i mean really they could crazy. think that you you know they're healed and they're married now and have kids and then something happens. I think that that happens a lot. I mean, I remember when he would go into the rehabs, they would have family meetings on Sundays. Uh oh, we lost her. Uh oh. Let's see if we get Debbie back again. We lost her for a second and she was going to tell us about the, um, Oh, she'll come back in. There she is. There she is. There yeah, you I don't know what happened. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, I remember when I go to the family meetings and you'd hear from people of all ages. And in the beginning, Alex was one of the youngest people there. And you'd hear from people who were kind of in and out of the rehabs, people that were older, you know, even in their 30s and 40s. And and they were just kind of battling this on and on and off throughout their lives. And yeah, so I, I think it's, I think it's difficult. And I think, I think for Alex, as he got older, his health deteriorated more and, you know, the more drugs he used, the more health issues and the harder it was to want to take care of himself too. Um, especially to take care of like his diabetes, his seizure disorder. Um, it was, it was it was not easy for him because it wasn't a priority for him at some at some point, you know. And it's so hard as a parent because you're trying to do their your best and you're trying to keep them active while they're teenagers and do well in school and have sports and have some sort of interest and you think you've got it all done and and then this happens. Yeah. And that's kind of what um the 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 grieving of you can grieve a loss even when they're still living um especially when mental illness and drugs take over because you know he was you know up until age 17 he was a totally different person you know he did a lot of sports you know the soccer the track the cross country the a lot of friends i mean it was more normal life and so you don't always expect that that's going to happen um and, you know, you don't always expect that you're going to lose your child either. You no, know? 
not to that or not to anything really. So what did, um, what do you think you could, oh, it's, it's such a hard thing because it just goes up and down to think that a parent has it fixed and then they don't. Um, and it all seems to be some sort of addiction related. Is it, is mental illness ever go with not, do you know? I don't know. I mean, I don't think we fully know a lot of theories on what causes mental illness. Uh oh, it looks like she's still there. We keep losing her. And I don't know if it's, we're having a storm today, so I'm not sure if it's us or her, but there she is. That's okay. We got you. <laughs> we'll get rid of this one. <laughs> there we go. Um, oh, I see. Um, so many times I think they go hand in hand. Um, they must. And I think that, I think that so many times mental illness and addiction go hand in hand. And I actually think that it's more common than people realize. Oh, for sure. Um, and I guess they're wanting to escape. Is that, I guess, the theory around? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what it is. I think it's an I think it's an escape. I think, you know, the more drugs he did, the more, because he probably did almost everything out there. The more of an escape it was, and he didn't have to he didn't have to live in this world because life was hard for him. I mean, he was he was suicidal a lot. Um, he was yeah. depressed a lot. I mean, life was really hard for him. Did you have to put his things together then after his passing? Like, did you have to get Ryu the executor of, of trying to find everything that he had? So, yeah, as his mom, yes. There wasn't a lot of stuff, though. I mean, he didn't own a lot. He hadn't worked since before COVID. Um I was actually, uh, I was, and 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 his family, my, my my parents, his grandparents, and me were um, supporting him financially. So there really wasn't a lot to do, um, to to that you would normally have for somebody's estate. Um, yeah. Because he really didn't have. He didn't have a car because of the seizures, so he didn't drive. Um, and he 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 rented a room. Um. And so he just really, he didn't have, um, he didn't have a lot of stuff. So there wasn't, it was more about his family, my, his, you know, my Dealing other two with kids, the... the grief. Yeah. And, and we, you know, we had to choose, you know, we had to make decisions about the funeral um, and the burial. And then after the funeral, my daughter and I went and chose like the details for the memorial for the gravestone and everything. Um, and so a lot of it was really just emotional your own, grieving. Your own, your own decisions for that fact. Cause I know with a lot of older, you know, over 18 year olds between 18 and say 30, once they start getting, you know, a truck loan or a car loan and their bank accounts and work and it, it gets to be complicated versus 
somebody who doesn't have anything to start with, but it's hard with digital, you know, with social media. And when they're attached to different things, you don't want that popping up years later and, and having that in front of your eyes when you know he's not there anymore. And why is it showing up that, that type of thing. So yeah, it's hard. It must be so hard for you as a family to, to understand that's the thing is I think we still don't really understand. We still don't have definite answers. I mean, his, you know, the autopsy eventually the, the medical examiner concluded that um, the death was due to alcoholism and diabetes, but we already knew he had alcoholism and diabetes. So we don't know. We know that he had a specific condition at the time of death called hyponatremia that can be caused, she said she sees it a lot with really heavy drinking where you stop and your body can go through this massive dangerous detox where I guess she said like your brains, your brain tissues can swell and it can, it can affect other organs as hyponatremia. And so, you know, there was so much empty alcohol found, but there was no alcohol found in his system. So we think it could have been like the shock and so his body went into shock and something shut down. And I don't know why she also thought diabetes played a role, but we don't really know. I mean, you know, a lot of times we don't have the answers when people are living. So, you know, I didn't actually expect that there would be a definitive answer of how right. he died, but we, we right. didn't, we didn't get a real, but we had to just live with that. We had to, um, live Versus with, some people with, have overdoses, right? And so it's clear, clearly. Right, which is earlier in his. Oh my gosh, yes, and it is a huge problem with fentanyl, and it's how we almost lost him in earlier years. Were were overdoses, um, and and but this was not an overdose, and so it's you know it's hard to know. It's it's definitely it seems like it was something from too much alcohol in his system, and then suddenly stopping it, and his body just something happened, some organ shut down, some, something that's hyponatremia caused something to shut down. But, um, and we didn't even get the results for, oh gosh, the autopsy report took 16 weeks. It took, a, oh. no, 12 to 16 weeks. It took a long time to get the autopsy. Um, and they don't always do it either. So um, they did, re- they, the police officers re- said that they, I didn't request it. The police officer did. He said that um, because they found him and they didn't know there was no evidence of outside trauma. And so he was a young, you know, fairly young person. He was 26 and a half. And so the police officer that called me to tell me he had passed away said that they ordered it. Um, And so I I was glad that they did because otherwise Mm -hmm. we'd have zero answers. We'd have nothing. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, because I know with the fentanyl, that's a huge problem as well. And it's usually just diagnosed as that. But um, I know it's just what I mean, I don't even have words. Um, I, I just don't know how you guys move on to understand. I, I mean, there's a purpose. There's a reason why you're on this journey that you've been given. Um, what do you think is the reason for you on this journey? 
Yeah, I'm sorry. Could you repeat the last part? What do you think? There's a reason why you're on this journey, why all three of you are on this journey together now. Why we're on the journey? Um, so, I mean, for me, it was, it was such a, you know, you never plan to lose a son or child, no. you know, it's not the natural order and it's not something I ever thought of. And, you know, after the initial, after the period of initial shock and, you know, the, it, just the initial kind of period of time, I just started going through this, like majorly looking at life in a whole different way and like rethinking my whole life and my whole life's purpose and doing all the soul searching. And um, it that had never really happened to me before. And I was aware I was doing it. Um, and I didn't know where it was gonna lead me to. And it eventually leaded me to um, just finding that my purpose was to help um to you know to help other parents who have teens or young adults especially that are suffering from mental illness and addiction and um i i mentioned i had a coaching business i am a life and relationship coach and i decided that i wanted to add this new direction for my business because this is what i felt really called to do mm -hmm. is to help these parents that are like living what i lived and to help them in the relationship with their child too through all this because the one thing that i was at least so grateful for is that alex and i had a really close loving relationship and so i can like cherish those memories with him and 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 not regret that like th that we had a, a you know a negative relationship because we didn't and so that was really a blessing for me and so i wanted to i really felt strongly be, to help other people and so also around the same time i um started writing a book and the interesting thing is i've never thought of myself as, as um that i would write a book if you had asked me you know before I would have said, no, I, I don't think I'm going to be writing a book anytime <laughs> soon. And I literally just, um, I was like guided to sign up for this um, write, book writing um, class. And um, it was like a, it was like a four, it was like, it started as a four day free challenge and it was through Hay House and I signed up and I thought, okay, I'll sign up, but it's free. And I listened to it and then I felt called to sign up for the membership, the one year membership. And then I literally just, I felt so strongly called to write this book, to share, to share my journey, to share, to share my story of the love and loss of my son um, through his mental illness and addiction um, and how I turned my pain into my purpose and to, um, to be able to hopefully to, to offer help to, to parents, um, given a better understanding of how to navigate um, the same difficulties that I was going through and, um, and, and, and navigate these challenges with compassion and love so that they can have a good re relationship and then give them the inspiration to go on after suffering a tragic yeah. loss. And so um, literally being called to write this book, the information just flows to me almost like 
it's so many times it's at night and I have to jot it all down. <laughs> um, and, and, um, which worked in the, which worked for a while. Cause I wasn't sleeping for a very long, uh, I wasn't sleeping well for a while after he died. And so, um, I wrote so much at, at night and, and the information just flowed so fast. Like the outline just fell into place literally in a day of a massively detailed outline. And, um, the writing is actually part of my healing journey too. Yeah. It's, um, it's very healing to write this book. Um, but it also aligns with my purpose. Um, yes. So it's so aligned that it, it's like, I'm so excited about writing this book and getting it out into the world. And I'm so excited about the new direction of my coaching business because everything feels aligned and it feels it feels really like this is what I was here to do. This is what I am here to do. This is, you know, um, it's, it's like, you know, another thing that I learned from Tony Robbins is he says, life is not happening to us. It's happening for us. And even in a really hard situation, like, like a death, it's mm -hmm. like, you think, how is life happening for you? You know, this can't be, this is not happening for me. Um, but the thing is, is that even though I miss him tremendously and I wish he was still with us here on earth, um, the, what, how it happened for me was to have me to live my purpose so that I can go on to help other people so that there may be other people that can have a really close relationship with their son or daughter despite these challenges and they cannot let all the fears permeate their whole life because if you allow fear to take over it will take over your life and and you won't have much of a life your life will be living through your son's mental illness and addiction and that's not that's not the life that you deserve to have no and it's a surprise that it came i mean yeah. All of a sudden they hit 18 and they change. So yeah, it's yeah. not really fair yeah. to anybody, is it? What kind of last message would you like to give people to list that are listening? Yeah. So the one thing I would say is that because we never know when, you know, we never know when we have more than today. We never know when we have more than this moment right now. And so to live as if this was your last moment, like what would you say to your loved ones? How would you show them you love, loved them? What would you say to them? How would you live your life? Because if you're not doing that now, you may not have another time. Nobody knows. Like I said before, there is no certainty. And no. so really just living each moment as if that is your moment, being present and knowing this is, if this is, what you have, what are you going to do with it? How are you going to live? How are you going to make sure your loved ones know how much you love them? Yeah, and that's so important. How are the your others doing? Are they it's supported? Hard for, it's hard for them too. I mean, the, the nice thing is, is the two of them and I are so very close. And so we're there for each other. And the, the, the magical thing is that we've all gone through the same thing together. So we have that bond because sometimes and understanding like, it's right, right. Because we are going, we are going through it together. Um, and so 
but it's, it's, it's hard for them. My, my other, my other son, he and Alex were, were not just brothers, but, but best friends. And so he talked to Alex every single day. And so it's really hard. Um, but it's hard on my daughter too. So, um, it's, we're just, we're, we do, we get through it together. We have each other, thankfully. And, um, and that's a blessing that we have each other. That's awesome. Oh, goodness gracious. I don't know. <sighs> I don't know what the answer is because there, I don't think there is one. <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you have all these celebrities that you think they have all the money and they have all the resources and they have all the big people that they can reach out to. And they still can't get it right. So I don't know what the answer is, really. It has to come from within them. I mean, yeah. that's why we can't, that's why even as a parent, you can't fix it for your child. You can yeah. guide them. You can you open their you eyes. Can. <laughs> you think you, you think can. You and can. That's, that's, yeah, that's where it, and, and, and you don't want to blame yourself. That's the other thing is I feel like, you know, a lot of times parents blame themselves. And unfortunately that takes you in a different direction where you're not in, you're not even in the right position to um yeah. to support and love your child in the right way that they need because you're focused on you you're like all into like oh my god this is my fault how does this look about me this looks bad on me as a mom and then your whole focus is you and that's not the energy you want to be having this relationship with your child from or or the other ones a, a, right or I, the other ones yeah because it's the energy everywhere so well, yeah. that's awesome. I I could listen to you all day, Debbie. I <laughs> uh, I think it's such an important topic and that we need to get out there. And I'm thankful that you are able to write this book. I'm anxious to maybe have you come back on when you finally have it launched. And I would love to talk more about the details of maybe specifics that you know, you could pull out of the book and, and talk about, because I really think it's an important matter today that we just, it's around us and it's, it, it's not going anywhere. Yeah. It's crazy. I would absolutely love. Sorry, go ahead. I think what happens is we freeze every now and then and we miss the last thing that the other person said. But, um, well, thank you, Debbie. Thank you so, so very much for coming on our show today. I appreciate it so much. And please take a moment and, and subscribe to our channel and click on that bell so you get notified. I'm going to get my hand out again. And it's down here at the bottom for your subscribe button and click on that bell so that you get notified about our upcoming videos and podcasts. Um, I want to thank Debbie for coming on our show. Um, it's so very grateful for your tips um, and your journey and your talk about, about it because it's, it's there, it's everywhere. It's your neighbor. It's your, friend at school it's it's everywhere i'm i'm sure that you saw that too it's there's no gender there's no color there's no age there's it's everywhere yeah, yeah. it's everywhere absolutely so when you are thinking about that special someone and i talk about this every time in my show 
that you haven't spoken to in a while and that you love and care about so very, very much. Please reach out to them and call them. We still have a phone. We still have FaceTime or Zoom or a knock on the door would be nice just to say, hey, are you doing okay? And I just wanted to reach out and tell you that you are on my mind. Why not, right? Why not do that? So stay tuned for our podcast and our live streams. Um, we have great conversations with some of the most interesting and accomplished people in the world, just like Debbie here, who can give us so much information about her journey through this. Oh, I don't know what it's called right now, but it's definitely there must be bigger numbers right now that's been going on um, than ever before uh, in statistic wise. I can't imagine it getting less. I'm sure it's gotten to be more. So thank you so very much. Um, I hope that everyone can put together their unique plan because uh, nobody's Superman guys, nobody at all and expect the unexpected. And thank you again for all our listeners. If um, we are now on all podcast platforms, YouTube, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, TikTok, and we have a Facebook group community uh, of like-minded people that would like to share their interesting and complicated estate planning. Um, and you are welcome to join. Everyone is welcome. So thank you for sharing with us. And thank you for coming on our channel today, Debbie. I really, really appreciate it so very, very much. And I always end with Carol Burnett. I know, Debbie, you know who Carol Burnett is. I do. <laughs> I'm so glad we had this time together just to have a laugh or sing a song. Seems we just get started. And before you know it, comes a time we have to say so long. So long, everybody. I really appreciate Debbie coming on and helping anybody out there that's listening. If you got one thing out of this, that's, that's my, my goal. So thank you. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Debbie, for coming on. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me as a guest. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks, everybody. Till next time. Stay safe. Be kind.